In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. If you were under 12 years of age, meet me down front, and we're going to have a, well, you're, yeah, there you are again. And if I can get you to sit right here in front of me so I can see you, that'd be a lot easier for me. Ah, my dress is too long. What's up? Are you spider girl? It's amazing. All right, so today, it's not so much a story as we're just going to kind of use our imaginations, okay? So let's say you wanted to learn how to be a chef. Do you guys know what a chef is? It's like a guy that's a really good cooker, or a girl It's a really good cooker. Um, it's, so you wanted to learn how to cook some big, complicated meals, like maybe like Thanksgiving dinner. Um, and you wanted your meals, whenever you cooked them, you want them to taste good, right? So you would go to a famous chef, and you would say, what? Teach me how to cook like you do, right? And let's say the chef agrees to teach you how to cook just as well as he does. But the very first cooking lesson he gives you is how to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> It'd be so easy, right? Now, making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, is that anything like making Thanksgiving dinner? No. No. no it's, what kind of Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner you got, bro? You could have peanut butter sandwiches for dinner. You could, but it's not the same as Thanksgiving, right? So you begin to wonder to yourself, why is this guy, this famous chef, why is he telling me to make a sandwich when what I want to do is to make a whole meal? Sandwiches aren't nearly as impressive as a Thanksgiving dinner, right? A hoagie. Well, you got me. <laughs> That's, you, you are, you are, no, you're correct on that one. All right, here's, here's another one. Let's say you wanted to learn to be a race car driver, right? And so you, learn, you want to learn how to drive a car like 200 miles an hour, really, really fast. And, and you want to learn to be the best race car driver there is. So you go to a famous race car driver, and you say, teach me how to drive as good as you do. But the very first driving lesson that he gives you, it isn't even in a car, right? The very first, the, the, nope, you, you can't read this. It's not what it says. <laughs> The very first lesson that you get about driving is actually from a book. See, you thought the B was bike. <laughs> I didn't read it. So he hands you a book, and instead of learning how to drive a car, you're learning about blinkers and windshield wipers and boring stuff like that. Is reading a book about boring car stuff the same thing as driving a race car? No, it is not. You do. You do. You do. But books and cars aren't the same thing. Can you drive a book to work? No, you cannot. Can you, can you read a good night car story? Nope, you cannot. So you wonder to yourself, why is this famous race car driver making me read a book when what I want to do is drive a car? Now, let me say this. Do you know that most of the time that you have to learn small things before you can learn big ones? Did you know that? Before you can do really, really complicated things, you have to learn how to do some simple ones. So here's, here's an example. So before I learned how to swim, I had to learn how to hold my breath underwater. You ever been to swim class? Yes. Yeah. Right. So like before they teach you how to swim and go off the diving board, what do they say? Like, put your face in the water. That's simple, right? Now, can you guys think of another example where you learned how to do something that was kind of tough, but before you learned how to do it, you had to learn how to do something really simple? Yes. What? Schoolwork. Schoolwork. You start at pre-K, then you go. Right. So you... You have to learn how to write, but then you have to learn how to, like, what the letters are before you can even write. 
Right? But writing a story isn't the same thing as learning how to write the letter A. It's not. But you have to learn how to do the simple things. You have to appreciate the simple things before you can really do the complicated ones. So here's what your, what your homework for this afternoon is, this morning is. So in my sermon today, I'm going to talk about doing really simple things first before you can do more complicated ones, okay? And I want you to listen really closely for when that happens, all right? Think you can do that? We're good? Now, go learn how to drive a race car and fix a salad while you're doing it. That's the lesson. <laughs> Give them a round of applause, guys. So for the, fa- the, the past few weeks, we've hopped around the Gospels, and instead of following the lectionary, we've, we've followed kind of a theme. The theme has been this. The church needs to be constantly reminded of the lessons we seem to very easily forget. Today's sermon will be no different. The text I want to speak on today is a text that I think is appropriate for Youth Sunday. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 42, and let's read together. If you don't, I'll I'll read it here. Mark chapter 9, verse 42, reads this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if he had a great millstone hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, Maybe you think I've lost my mind using a text like this for Youth Sunday. I mean, in 10 verses, Jesus mentions hell three different times. He's talking about worms that don't die and fire that doesn't go out. There's a part about a person being better off if they tied a stone around their neck and got tossed into the ocean. Jesus is talking about eyeballs coming out, cutting off hands and feet. You know, all the stuff you bring up in a children's sermon. (laughs) Hear me out. I want to set the stage just a bit for these verses. So Mark's gospel, uh, to me, seems to describe the the Messiah as a person who is relentlessly in opposition to evil. From the time that you begin Mark's gospel for eight solid chapters, Jesus is locked in battle. And then in chapter 9, Mark shows the true transcendent glory of the Messiah. On the top of a mountain in the company of Elijah, Moses, and the Father, the transfigured Jesus substantiates every single one of his claims. He is the Messiah, and as the Messiah, he has come to cast out the ruler of this world and establish his kingdom. But Jesus has one major problem. His best friends, the disciples, they just don't seem to get what being the Messiah actually means. You see, when it comes to Jesus being the Messiah, here's what the disciples were positive about, what they were sure about. First, Jesus was the Messiah. Good start. Second, Jesus kept saying he was going to die. 
And third, there's no way Jesus actually dies because C.1, he's the Messiah. Maybe this whole dying thing was just one of his crazy metaphors or something, but there's no way Jesus actually dies because as everyone knows, Messiahs don't die. They win, and winning is not dying. It's as simple. It didn't make sense to the disciples. How could Jesus be the Messiah yet die? How could both of these things be true? And their misunderstanding about the meaning of the Messiah skews their entire outlook. It skews their whole perspective. And the way Jesus corrects them, the way Jesus shows them their error is, error is so simple and beautiful and profound, you and I would do well to remember it as well. So let's stay in chapter 9 and start with verse 9. Let's look with Jesus as he's descending the mountain and see what happens. Mark chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus comes down the mountain, we see the disciples are still a little unclear about a few things. Mark 9, verse 9 says this, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus said, Tell no one of what you've seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now, Peter, James, and John don't understand what in this verse, that Jesus is going to die and rise again. They couldn't even fit his words into their picture of what being the Messiah meant. If you're one of the disciples, you already have a set of facts about the Messiah, and dying is not one of them. You know that when the Messiah comes, he's going to lead his people to conquer his, his enemies. Second, the Messiah is going to establish his kingdom and is going to restore Israel to its former glory. And since you know those two things are absolutely true, dying at the hands of Israel's enemies cannot be on the list of stuff the Messiah does. That is crazy talk, Jesus. And as the disciples are trying to wrap their minds around all that they had seen and heard, Jesus does something kind of groundbreaking. It kind of looks like Jesus hosts the very first clergy retreat in all of church history. Look in verse 30. It says, He didn't want anyone to know he was passing through Galilee because he was teaching his disciples. You see, Jesus recognized that his disciples were struggling. He knew that the disciples saw him as the Messiah, but he also knew the disciples were struggling to accept what he was saying. He knew they struggled to understand how Jesus could be the Messiah yet die. And so Jesus responds by turning his full attention towards them, towards teaching them. What do you think he taught them? Verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise again. Jesus retreats into the wilderness with his disciples, and he makes it clear. He was God's Messiah, and he was going to die. He left no room for someone to call him the Messiah, but deny that his death was coming. And if, if the disciples were to call Jesus Messiah, if they were to be his followers, they needed to toss out what they thought they knew and instead listen to his words. Verse 32 shows how the disciples respond to this. It says, but they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. The disciples were confused and full of questions, but they just sat there and they said nothing. 
They still didn't understand what Jesus meant, still not sure what he was saying, and now they just quit asking questions altogether. They stopped trying to reconcile Jesus' teaching about his death and what they thought they knew about the Messiah. Now, why? Why would you do this? Why stop asking questions about the Messiah to the Messiah? Well, Jesus is saying the disciples need a radical change, and that can be difficult. That can be even scary. So it seems to me the disciples stop asking questions because they can't ask a question that gives them the answer that makes them feel comfortable. Jesus won't give them the answer they want, so they say nothing. And as we move into verse 33, you can see what the fruit of a hardened heart looks like in full bloom. Jesus and his disciples, they're on the way to Capernaum, and the disciples are arguing over this really, really important issue. Basically, the issue was this. Which one of them was the best? I'm not making this up. Now, why on earth are these guys arguing about this nonsense? Well, the disciples knew that Jesus would be crowned king in Jerusalem. They had that on lockdown. They knew that. Positive that the Messiah would take his throne and establish his kingdom. And, of course, that meant when he was king, the disciples would be his right-hand men, his royal assistants. They would play a very integral role in the kingly court of Jesus. They were about to be really, really important people, and figuring out which disciple is at the top of the pecking order, that's on the top of the list of the stuff you talk about. The disciples are convinced that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be crowned, convinced that the Messiah's right-hand men would afford them social status, and so they argue and yet fail to hear the words of Jesus. And the words of Jesus, the truth was this. The crown that awaits Jesus in Jerusalem was made of thorns, not of gold. The exaltation, the lifting up of Jesus in Jerusalem would not be on a throne, but a cross. The disciples still don't get it, and now they seem to be drifting even further away. So how does Jesus address this level of arrogance, this level of willful blindness? Well, Jesus, as he is prone to do, goes to the heart of the issue. Who will be the greatest, you ask? Look in verse 35. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus says, You want to know who's going to be the greatest in my kingdom? Certainly not the one who's clamoring for power. No, the greatest in my kingdom is the least and the servant of everyone. That person's the greatest. Jesus is telling his disciples that in his kingdom, proximity to the Messiah means you serve more, not less. Being a right-hand man of Jesus doesn't mean that you're waited on hand and foot. It means that you attend to the needs of others. And in one of the greatest object lessons in Scripture, Jesus says this in verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking his, in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not just me, but he who sent me. Now maybe you're thinking, well, that's a very cute story. But how does this address the disciples? How does this object lesson say anything to them? Well, 
For the most part, children were at the very bottom rung of the social ladder. They have no status, no power, no money, no experience. But Jesus says that when you welcome someone like that, someone like a little child in his name, when you welcome someone with no social status or prestige in that moment, you are actually welcoming him. In the kingdom of Jesus, you don't find access to the king because you know the biggest power players. You don't gain access to the king because you rub shoulders with the rich and famous. No, in Jesus' kingdom, if you want to see the king, if you want an audience with divine majesty, then in the name of Jesus, go and serve the unimportant. Go and serve those who afford you absolutely nothing. And by doing so, then you find yourself in the presence of the king himself. In the kingdom of Jesus, your social position has nothing to do with your access to the Messiah or to his Father. The king will see anyone who comes in his name. Anyone who receives another in his name, regardless of their wealth or power, is a right-hand man of Jesus and a divine ambassador of his kingdom. This means there is no such thing as a power broker in the kingdom of Jesus. You will not find yourself in the presence of the king if you're worried about the prestige of those around you. There is no manipulation. There are no power moves in the kingdom of Jesus. No, there are only servants. There are only those who serve the least, the downtrodden, the unimportant. And by serving the lowest of the low, you serve the king himself. Now, maybe that sounds beautiful to you, but don't miss this part. This would have devastated the disciples. They were hoping that their nearness to Jesus would give them some social perks, give them some level of control or say-so in his kingdom. And Jesus, with the child sitting in his lap, absolutely shatters their expectations. Jesus tells his disciples in no uncertain terms, His kingdom is much different than they thought. Chapter after chapter, he is screaming at them. They are in the middle of a war, a war between darkness and light, between his kingdom and the kingdom of the world, and the disciples still aren't seeing it. Jesus tries to lift their eyes above their normal social concerns about position and power and all of that stuff. These things are keeping them from seeing the kingdom as it is. And Jesus makes clear to the disciples, they can't afford to be on the wrong side of this conflict. They have to repent and be reoriented, or they fail to do so, or if they fail to do so, they face utter ruin. They face absolute destruction. And so Jesus reminds the disciples of just how much is on the line. He reminds them with these words, starting in verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown in hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This description contains some of the most graphic language in the entire Bible. It's truly shocking language. But it's shocking for a good reason. Jesus describes the outcome of those who reject him, of those who refuse his life. And that outcome is inconceivably terrible. 
Even, even mentioning the word hell brings to mind the worst images we can conjure. For most of us, there's medieval art or pop culture references have shaped those images. Famous paintings like maybe Dante's Inferno or something like that is stuck in your mind. But the disciples, they didn't have medieval art to influence their thoughts. No, they had different images. And in my opinion, these images are worse. You see, the word hell in this passage is the translation of the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna was actually the name of a valley just on the south side of Jerusalem. And in the time of the disciples, it was an actual garbage dump. And yeah, that's, that's bad enough. But it wasn't just a filthy place. It was a filthy place that was also synonymous with evil itself. For hundreds of years, Gehenna was seen as the embodiment of what being outside of God's kingdom looked like. Way back in the Old Testament, before Gehenna even became a garbage dump, some of the worst kings of Judah used that valley as a place to erect altars. But the altars they built weren't to Yahweh. No, kings like Ahaz and Manasseh, they followed after other gods, gods that were detestable. And in Gehenna, they worshipped these despicable deities with acts of worship that could only be described as demonic. These kings of Judah, the grandsons of King David himself, would worship these gods in the valley of Gehenna by sacrificing their own children in fire. This was a place of deep, deep darkness, demonic darkness, a place of shame and contempt for the Jewish people. And it had been for close to a thousand years before it became a garbage dump. And now, Jesus directs the disciples' attention toward this smoldering garbage heap, and he tells them his kingdom is breaking into this world, and if they stand against it, if they side against him, they risk total and utter ruin, absolute ruin like Gehenna. And anything would be better than that. Even if you had to pluck out an eye or cut off a hand or a foot, anything that diverts your course from that smoldering garbage dump must be considered. And this is where you and I have to stop and take inventory. Are we like the disciples? Is Jesus constantly talking to us and we are constantly refusing to listen, refusing to consider what he's saying? Are we focused on our own power, our own prestige, acting as if our position in the kingdom is more important than the kingdom itself? Do you see the church of Jesus, Jesus serving the least among us? Are we serving our children because we truly believe that when we encounter them, we encounter the king himself? Or are we sitting on the sidelines because serving the least among us is just, just a little too messy? Do we find ourselves serving those who may provide us an opportunity in the future? Do we serve because it makes us feel good, makes us look good? Are we like that? Are we like the disciples, refusing to listen to the words of Jesus? When Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to die, the disciples won't hear it. They can't consider it. It was just too much. What's too much for us? When Jesus talks about sin and death and hell and the cross and forgiveness and blood, do we flinch? Do we back away because it's a little too unpopular to discuss this openly? Do we sanitize Jesus so that he's a little less controversial? Do we do that? Do we change Jesus and conform him to our image, to an image we're comfortable with? 
Do we believe Jesus is being serious when he says, whoever receives one such in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not just me, but he who sent me? If we do believe that, if we are in the kingdom of Jesus, then we believe that our goal is a cross. Our expectation is death. Our hope is not in the power or our abilities. Our hope is in nothing less than Jesus Christ himself. C.S. Lewis put it this way when talking about the normal struggles of life and the spiritual expectations of Christ. He said this, Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing, that you have, nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. If you look for yourself, you will find in the long run only hatred and loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. I pray that our hearts are tender before the Lord. I pray that we hear what he says. Like the disciples, he knows exactly where we struggle, where we aren't in line with his kingdom, and he loves us still. Like the disciples, he is speaking to us. He is teaching us and helping us, but we must be willing to listen to him when he says, serve the least among you, and in doing so, you will find me. We must be willing to listen to him. His kingdom is open to you. It is open to everyone, open to all who will come and receive his life. And for as severe as the consequences may be of not being in it, I praise God that his kingdom is open to us yet. Praise God. Praise the King. Amen.